morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 28 this morning. We've been following Paul on his first missionary journey. Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark started out by sailing from their home church in Antioch in Syria to the big island of Cyprus. There they faced opposition from a sorcerer. The sorcerer was supernaturally blinded by God's judgment, but the proconsul in charge of the island became a believer in Christ. From there, Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark set sail north to Perga in modern-day Turkey. It was here that John Mark deserted them and went back to Jerusalem. As I said, this will later become a significant source of tension between Paul and Barnabas. From Perga, Paul and Barnabas travel north, uphill from sea level to about 3,500 feet, to the town of Antioch in the province of Pisidia. They had good success at first, and the gospel began to spread. But some leaders in the city stirred up opposition, and Paul and Barnabas were expelled from the city. From Antioch in Pisidia, they traveled about 80 miles, or three or four days' trip, east to the town of Iconium. And that brings us up to our passage for this morning. Iconium is actually still there today and is now known as Kanya. It is a modern city with a population of about 2 million people. Like most of Paul's ministry, his ministry in Iconium turned out to be a mixture of success with danger. Let's read about it in verses 1 to 6. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Laconian cities of Lystra and Derbe, and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, glorify yourself through the preaching of your word this morning. We ask that your Holy Spirit would impress on our hearts the message that you have for us. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, Paul and Barnabas begin by preaching in the synagogue to the Jew first and also to the Greeks or Gentiles. As I've said before, their goal was to convert their Jewish contemporaries so that they would fulfill their God-given mission to be a light to the Gentiles. And their message in Iconium was effective. Verse 1 says that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But it seems like every time Paul has success, it is also accompanied by opposition. In this case, the Jews who refused to believe stirred up opposition against Paul and Barnabas, so much so that apparently the whole town was divided over them. Reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 10. Do not suppose I've come to bring peace to the earth. 
I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Jesus went on further to explain that anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Jesus' teaching here is like the first commandment where God says, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus, as God, is making the same claim for himself. This absolute allegiance to Jesus sometimes causes the division he was talking about. In some countries, when someone turns their life over to Jesus, they are sometimes disowned or beaten or even killed by their own family. In our text this morning, a whole town is divided over Jesus. Although Paul and Barnabas had significant opposition, they didn't immediately just give up and move on. Verse 3 says they spent considerable time there. There's a saying that goes back to ancient times that says, He that fights and runs away may turn and fight another day, but he that is in battle slain will never rise to fight again. When they heard the plot to stone them in verse 5, Paul and Barnabas decided it was time to move on once again and fight the good fight elsewhere. So Paul and Barnabas fled from Iconium to Lystra, about 20 miles or a day's journey to the east. But they didn't just run and hide. Verse 7 says they continued to preach the gospel. This time their message was initially a little too successful. Let's read about it in verses 8 to 13. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. The crowd saw what Paul had done. and They shouted in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the gate, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. So Paul and Barnabas travel about 20 miles to the east to Lystra, a thriving market town. There Paul heals a man, and the people think that Paul and Barnabas are gods. Now, that's a little far-fetched, isn't it? I mean, no one in any other town or city ever thought Paul or Peter were gods just because they healed someone. Why would the people of Lystra think Paul and Barnabas were gods just because they healed a man? Now, I don't need history or literature to convince me that the Bible is true. But in this case, ancient literature may help us understand what's going on here. There was an ancient Roman poet named Ovid who had written a fictional story about this region, probably less than 10 years before Paul got there. The story is called The Tale of Baucus and Philemon. So I'm going to read my own edited version of this story 
shortened with updated language. And then I'll explain how I think this relates to Paul and Barnabas. <clears throat> the story is a little long. It'll take about five minutes to read. But I think it's worth the time for two reasons. First, I think it helps us understand what's going on in Lystra when the people want to worship Paul and Barnabas. And second, I think it gives a fascinating insight on how average small town people may have lived when Paul and Barnabas ministered on his journeys. As I read this, just try to imagine what it was like to live back then. There is a swamp near the hills of Phrygia, once habitable land, but now the haunt of birds and marsh-living coats, coots. The god Jupiter went there disguised as a mortal, and Mercury, setting aside his wings, went with his father. They knocked at the doors of a thousand houses, looking for a place to rest, but all rejected them, except one. The home was a humble dwelling, roofed with reeds and stems from the marsh, but godly Baucus and her equally aged husband Philemon had been married in that cottage in their younger years, and there had grown old together. They made light of their poverty by acknowledging it and bearing it without discontent. It didn't matter if you asked for owner or servant there. Baucus and Philemon were the whole household. They gave orders and carried them out equally. So when the gods from heaven met this humble couple and stooped down to enter the low doorway, the old man pulled out a bench and invited them to rest. Baucus threw a rough blank over the blanket over the bench. Then she raked the warm ashes in the hearth and brought yesterday's fire to life, feeding it with leaves and dry bark and nursing the flames with her aged breath. Baucus pulled down some twigs and dried stems from the roof and breaking them further, she pushed them under a small bronze pot. Next, she stripped the leaves from vegetables that her husband had gathered from his well-watered garden. Philemon used a two-pronged stick to lift down a wretched-looking piece of meat hanging from a blackened beam in the ceiling. He cut a small piece from it and put it in boiling water. In the meantime, Philemon and Baucus made conversation to pass the time and to prevent their guests from being conscious of the delay. There was a wooden tub, suspended by its handle from a peg. This had been filled with warm water and allowed their visitors to wash up. In the middle of the floor, there was a mattress of plants, placed on a frame with willow legs. It made a couch, which they covered with cloths that they only brought out for sacred festivals. But even these were old and worn the gods were seated. The old woman, her skirts tucked up and her hands trembling, placed a table there. Since one of the three legs was not quite as long as the other, she slid a piece of broken pot under the short leg to keep the table from leaning. Then she wiped the surface with, surface with fresh mint. On the table, she put black and green olives, cherries, radishes, a lump of cheese, and lightly roasted eggs, all in clay dishes. After this, she set out a carved mixing bowl for wine with cups made of beech wood, hollowed out and lined with yellow beeswax. Soon the fire provided its hot food, and the wine of no great age circulated and then removed again to make room for the second course. 
There were nuts, and a mix of dried figs and wrinkled dates, plums, sweet-smelling apples, all in open wicker baskets, and grapes gathered from the purple vines. In the center was a gleaming honeycomb. Above all, there was the additional presence of happy faces. Baucus and Philemon had a goose, the guard for their tiny cottage. As hosts, they prepared to sacrifice it for their guests. But the goose was quick-winged and escaped them, wearing the old couple out, finally appearing to take refuge with the gods themselves. They said not to kill it. We are gods, they said, and this neighborhood will receive just punishment for its refusal to welcome us. But to you, we grant exemption from that evil. Just leave your house and follow us as we climb up that steep mountainside together. They both obeyed, and leaning on their stick canes to ease the climb, they set foot on the long slope. When they were as far from the summit as a bowshot might carry, they looked back and saw that everything had vanished in the swamp. Only their own roof was visible. While they stood amazed at this, mourning their neighbor's fate, their old cottage, tiny even for the two of them, turned into a temple. Wooden poles became pillars, and the reed thatch grew yellow until a golden roof appeared. Richly carved doors also appeared, and a marble pavement covered the ground. Then Mercury said to them, Ask of us whatever you wish. He had spoken briefly with his wife. Philemon revealed their joint request to the gods. We ask to be priest and watch over your temple, and let the two of us die together, so that I never have to see my wife's grave, nor she have to bury me. They were given charge of the temple. Until one day, as they happened to be standing by the sacred steps, discussing the subject of their death, they saw each other grow leaves as they began to turn into trees. As the top of the trees grew over their two faces, they looked at each other and said at the same time, Farewell, dear companion. And in the same breath, the bark covered them, concealing their mouths. Now, the setting for this story is the province of Phrygia, which is not too far from where Paul and Barnabas were ministering. And now, remember that in Acts 14, Paul was called Hermes and Barnabas was called Zeus. But in this story, it refers to Mercury and Jupiter. In ancient mythology, however, Mercury is Hermes and Zeus is Jupiter. I think the people in Lystra had heard of Ovid's story and took it seriously. When they saw Paul miraculously heal a man who had been a paraplegic from birth, they thought, the story must have been true. The gods have come back. They've now come to our town. If we don't welcome their property properly, their judgment may fall on us too. So they start to worship Paul and Barnabas, thinking they were the gods in Ovid's story. Verses 14 to 18, we find that Paul and Barnabas, of course, are shocked. They tear their clothes as a sign of distress, rush into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. Paul tells them to turn from their worthless idols to the living God 
who made the heavens and earth and the sea and everything in them. Verse 18 says that even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Now, when Paul calls them to turn from their worthless idols, that is the idea of repentance. Repentance is a change of heart. Turning from the idols or whatever you put first in your heart to making Jesus the Lord and King of your heart and life. Paul is calling them to repentance. And while it seems that the initial response to their message may have been a bit too successful, that was not to last. The news that they were not really gods after all apparently did not go over very well. Verse 19 says, Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. Now, this incident is confirmed by Paul's own personal testimony in 2 Corinthians 11. And there are cases in both ancient and modern, in the modern world in which people have survived stoning. In this case, however, some scholars think Paul actually died and was brought back to life by the Lord. Others think Paul was just knocked unconscious and assumed to be dead. Either way, this would have been enough to stop most people, but not Paul. Verse 11 says he went right back into the city. Now, I seriously doubt that he went back to Lystra publicly as if to say, nah, 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 you didn't kill me. I suspect the believers snuck him back into the city and hid him in one of their homes to give him time to recuperate enough from his wounds to be able to travel. When Paul was well enough, he and Barnabas then continued on to Derby, about 90 miles further to the east, and had a successful ministry there. Now, just as a tangent, this whole region around Iconium, Lystra, and Derby was in Paul's time in the Roman province of Galatia. So when Paul wrote the book of Galatians, I think he was writing to churches in these cities. And by the way, on Wednesday after Thanksgiving, we will start studying the book of Galatians in our midweek Bible study. So if you haven't been coming, it would be a great time to start. Anyway, by the time Paul got to Derby, he had traveled in a big circle and was only about 170 miles from his sending church in Antioch, the big Antioch in Syria. But rather than taking the most direct route back home, Paul turned around and went right back through Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch and Pisidia, where he had just been persecuted. He wanted to encourage and strengthen the new churches he had started, and he wasn't about to let local governments or public opposition stand in his way. In fact, in verse 22, Paul told his new churches, if you just had more faith, God would have kept you from persecution and, and prospered you. No, that's not what he said. What he actually said was, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. This, of course, touches on one of my hobby horses. Just having enough faith or giving seed money to someone's ministry will not guarantee your health, wealth, and prosperity or deliver you from the hardships of this life. Just because you encounter hardships does not necessarily mean that you're doing something wrong. In fact, it might mean you're doing something right. Our job is to strive to be faithful to God, regardless of the circumstances. Anyway, Paul and Barnabas continued all the way back to Perga and preached the gospel. He went down to the town of Attilia, all the, uh, the, reg the region's primary seaport, 
where he and Barnabas got on a merchant ship and sailed back to their sending church in Antioch of Syria. When they got home, according to verse 27, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So what do we learn from this passage? Well, first, ministry focuses both on evangelism and edification or building believers up in the faith. Paul didn't just get people to walk the aisle, so to speak. He actually went back to encourage and build up the new believers in their faith, even at the risk of significant danger. Second, ministry confronts society's false ideology as in religions. In verse 15, Paul called people to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth. Paul is telling them that their religions and idols are worthless. This is not politically correct, even in Paul's day. People were generally tolerant of all kinds of religions, but it was not likely to go over well if you criticized their religions. I have sometimes cringed when I've heard some of our presidents who professed to be Christian calling Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism the world's great religions. They are not great religions. Paul would have said these religions are just worthless idolatry. My third observation is the repeated theme that ministry often takes place in the context of opposition, persecution, and hardship. Just about every place Paul went, he stirred up opposition and encountered numerous hardships. Just because you encounter opposition in your life or ministry, and ministry is not just for pastors, right? Just because you encounter opposition or hardship does not mean you're doing something wrong. It may mean you're doing something right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for the courage and strength to be faithful to you regardless of hardship or opposition. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.